Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Listen to the Word of God. And our Old Testament reading this morning is from the third and fourth chapters of Ruth. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now, here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, all that you tell me, I will do. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne you. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, you who make all things new, make us new today. We give you thanks and praise for the gift of your word, that you are the God who desires to be known by us, to us, and through us. And so we pray that we would hear you well, that we might make you better known in this world. Pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I I never cease to be amazed at the way that uh, God's purposes get worked out in the world. Uh, And I'm usually amazed because when I think about what God's up to in the world, I think about uh, big stories, big names, right? I I think about Abraham, about God calling Abraham uh, and other people to to leave uh, and do extraordinary things, to give up everything uh, they own and leave the safety and security um, uh, that they know and head out to God only knows where. Or I think of Moses, God calling him from the 
the, the quiet life of tending sheep and raising a family to take down an oppressive empire for the sake of its slaves. Or when I think about God's purposes getting worked out in the world, I, I think about Peter transformed from fisherman to rock of the church. Or Paul knocked to the ground by Jesus, his whole life turned right side up and inside out for the sake of the world. I think about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa, you know, the kinds of stories and biographies that inspire and convict us. When I think about God's call on our lives, I have this default to assume that when we're in cahoots with God, big things, obviously God things, are about to happen. And I don't know if that's because I'm kind of unavoidably shaped by the culture around us, a culture that prizes and worships the extravagant and the extraordinary, or if it's because sometimes the means and ways of God really are extravagant and extraordinary, always surprising. I mean, our faith is based on, rooted in the hope of a single event that even people who knew it was coming didn't believe. You know, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead uh, is the, the moment where we see most clearly what God is up to in this world. And Jesus told his disciples again and again that it was going to happen, and they still didn't believe it. Even when they saw him raised from the dead, they couldn't believe it. God's determination that the ways and means of the world, that power and violence and death will not be the way things are, tells us the kind of God we're dealing with. Ours is a God who can bring life out of a grave. We should expect that when God moves, big things are going to happen. Now, on the other hand, and, and why I'm generally and regularly amazed at the ways that God's purposes get worked out in the world is that we've got like the rest of Scripture. <laughs> You know, there are the big stories that move the big story forward. There are the, the names that get the holy headlines, but that's not most of Scripture. You know, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, in all the Bible, is a guy named Simon the Tanner. Anybody know where Simon the Tanner shows up? Yeah, you do. I can see you laughing. <laughs> Simon the Tanner. Any takers? Any takers? Simon the Tanner. No? Well, there's a story in the book of Acts where a guy named Cornelius, a Roman centurion of all things, uh, gets this vision from God. He's visited by an angel who tells him to go and send for this guy named Peter to come and preach to him. And at the same time, Peter is miles away. He's waiting for his lunch to be made. And he has this vision uh, in prayer. He sees a, a sheet full of unclean animals floating down from heaven. So we know that there's something God is, uh, some big God thing is going to happen, right? We've got visions, we've got angels. Um, and, and Peter is told to eat these unclean animals. And Peter refuses because he's a good Jew and good Jews don't eat unclean animals. And, and a voice from heaven, God thinks, that uh, tells him not, that, not to call anything unclean that God has made clean. And at that moment, the messengers from Cornelius arrive. And, and to make a long story very short, that's why most of us are here today. <laughs> now, this is the moment that non-Jews become a part of the Jesus movement. And here's the thing. The reason that Cornelius' messengers could find Peter was that he was staying at the home of Simon the Tanner. You know, that, that, that's how they tracked him down. The, the angel of the Lord told him to go to Simon the Tanner's place. And so we know two things about Simon the Tanner. One, he was a tanner. And two, he let Peter stay at his house. And that is all that we know about him. But we can read about him in the Bible 2,000 years later. He's in here. You know, it was that simple act of hospitality that made it possible for us to read it. 
2,000 years later. I just love Simon the Tanner. And the fact is, that's most of the people in the Bible. You know, we know almost nothing about them. Half of Jesus' disciples never get another mention after they're introduced, after we're introduced to him. We know their names and, and just about nothing else, except that they were in some way integral to Jesus' mission. He needed them to partner with him. If you're having trouble sleeping tonight, uh, read it for the first few chapters of the book of Numbers. I mean, it's just lists of people that we never hear of again, but they're integral to God's story. And this is why I also love the, the, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth. Now, granted, she does get a whole biblical book named after her, but the details of her life aren't that exceptional. I mean, if you haven't read it, you should. If you haven't read it yet, you should. It's wonderful, uh, and it's short. Um, and what's wonderful about it, what I think I find most amazing about it, is that there's nothing really amazing about it at all. It's the story of a young woman who refuses to abandon her mother-in-law, Naomi, after a series of deaths, leaves them both husbandless, which a in that time and place was a precarious situation for women. It's the story of a young woman who seems to do more or less what comes naturally to her. And not abandoning your mother-in-law isn't, for most of us, I think, a great moral accomplishment. You know, for Ruth, it's the harder of two choices. It's not that there's not sacrifice there, but it hardly seems to warrant a whole book in the Bible. And then she goes to work so the two of them can eat. And the narrator tells us, he makes a point of saying that she works really hard. That's good. Gleaning from Boaz's field. But again, this, this isn't terribly exciting God stuff. Perhaps the biggest accomplishment is that she takes her mother-in-law's dating advice, uh, which, as we heard today, turned out to be pretty good advice. You know, she ends up married to Boaz, a man who's successful and upstanding, kind and faithful. And they have a child together. And then Ruth and Naomi have a family again. And that's the bulk of the action of this story. There's some strange ancient legal customs mixed in, but that's about it. And God is kind of nodded at here and there. There's a distinct lack of you know, fire from heaven or plagues. <laughs> There's no miraculous food, just what Ruth managed to get her hands on. No thundering prophecies, just the wisdom of an old woman. There's no heavenly voices or visions which by no means means that God's not at work. I mean, we know that God is at work because Ruth says to Naomi right at the very beginning of the book, don't press me to leave you. Naomi is trying to convince her daughters-in-law to go and have lives together or for themselves. And Ruth says to Naomi, don't press me to leave you or make me turn back from following you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. You know, I have this imagination of Ruth spending years overhearing her husband and her in-laws praying and singing and worshiping, telling their God stories of freedom and redemption and faithfulness, organizing their lives around God's word and promise, measuring their time and their work by God's gracious rhythms. And I have to imagine that that stuff got into her, that it captured her own imagination. Of course, I'm reading this into the story but I think it's fair. And so even though she's a Moabite, uh, not an Israelite like Naomi, she knows Israel's God. She knows something about this God. She's learned from her husband and family what this God is like. And she knows that this God is faithful and tenacious for the ones he loves. 
She knows that this God is a provider, a comforter, self-giving and generous. She knows that life with this God is the work of humble obedience that leads to true freedom. And when she says, your God will be my God, she seems to mean it. She has this almost instinctive sense of how to live in these God conditions. Now, my wife, uh, Kate, likes to talk about medieval craft guilds, uh, not because she's a huge nerd, uh, but because she's brilliant. And she she likes the goal of these these guilds. They, they, They were groups of people committed to practicing their craft so that the things they did or built or made seemed to come so naturally that they, they almost seemed to be spontaneous. Now, the goal was to make it look like their creation simply flowed out of them. But they weren't spontaneous, right? Their, their, their actions and reactions, their creativity and their expression was the result of their, their consistent and practiced faithfulness to their craft. I, I'm more inclined to think in sports analogies, so you can tell where the class is in our household. But if you've ever watched a professional athlete train, they, you know, they're not mostly practicing in-game stuff. They're not playing pickup forever and hoping that they get better. No, they, they do weird exercises and drills that, that speed up their reactions and hone their instincts and train their bodies and minds to, to do what needs to be done almost unconsciously. So that amazing save or that, that spectacular last second basket or that, that incredible catch doesn't come from nowhere. They are ready for it. And I think that or something like it is what happens in Ruth's life. Now, when she refuses to leave Naomi, that seems like a spontaneous thing, but I bet it's not. I bet she's mimicking Naomi's God, who will be hers. The one she's come to know in and through her family. Ditto when she goes to work to provide for the two of them. And again, when she submits to Naomi's wise counsel. You know, at every step, she's practicing to quote Nietzsche through Eugene Peterson, that long obedience in the same direction that makes a saint a saint. She's doing the simple things that work God's work into the world and that reveal God's image in and through her, one faithful step at a time. And you know, here's the punchline of Ruth's story. We heard it. Uh, she ends up as King David's great grandma, right? And King David is the, one, the line through whom Jesus is born. And this really is a God thing. I mean, no one could have seen this coming. Ruth's a Moabite. Moabites are considered enemies of Israel. Mo- Ruth is a no-name Moabite widow. But she is a no-name Moabite widow whose faithfulness is the way that God's salvation comes into the world. She couldn't have known that. <laughs> but she didn't have to. Because God loves to work in these surprising and unexpected kinds of ways. And most often, not all that interesting kinds of ways through the lives and work of pretty regular folks, folks like us, which I think makes the world amazing. Because our whole lives are shot through with God's glory, that every action has something to do with God's story. And I think that's an important word for us as we mark All Saints Sunday. You know, Ruth reminds us that that great cloud of witnesses that the letter to Hebrews speaks of, that surrounds us, is made up mostly of folks, well, like Ruth, like, like us. Most of God's purposes aren't thunder and lightning. Most of God's purposes are whispers of love and a simple willingness of people to respond 
in faithfulness to the God who is faithful to us from beginning to end and then through it. And when we gather together as church, we're learning to listen for those whispers of love, to respond fully and freely and faithfully. Church is our, our craft guild. It's our training center for learning to live in full life response to God. And I think the saints that are kind of top of mind for many of us today, the ones that we're missing from this community that we just heard about, you know, bear that out. Now, when I, when I think of Lorraine, I think mostly of her willingness to show up early, week after week, and make coffee for us. Or her commitment to sending cards. Some of us might not know this. She sent cards to our kids on the anniversary of their baptism. I think of the number of people who showed up to her funeral, if you were there, uh, whose lives had been profoundly touched by her faith folded into simple conversations and little lived in simple daily acts of service and kindness over years. When I, when I think of Walter, I can't help but think of God's tenaciousness. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever spoken to me quite as directly as Walter did. Yeah, but what I remember even more is, uh, is Walter's laugh. You know, shoot. We're going to get through this together. <laughs> His joy in sharing pate and wine and talking about things that matter and sometimes things that don't. I think of God's joy when I think of Walter. The promise that heaven is a banquet with the best food and drink that money can't buy. When I think of David, I think of a kind of quiet kindness. I just thought he had kind of a mischievous smile. I don't know what's going on in there. Yeah, look at that. But I'll always remember him uh, carrying the Bible for Gail when she was lector every time. For me, that was a living parable of faith. Uh, you know, this reminder that we don't live the word alone, that we can't be people of faith on our own. We don't need just God's steadfastness. We need the, the stead steady accompaniment of others along the way. And finally, when I think of Alan, my goodness, talk about a long obedience in the same direction. His pastoral heart captures my imagination. I have this feeling that if he met you, he prayed for you. <laughs> I think that's probably a guarantee. I know an awful lot of us misses phone calls just to check in, see how it is with our souls, offer an encouraging word. Sometimes... Alan reminded me of how Jesus shows up, sometimes unannounced <laughs> and uninvited. Uh, I think it was Ez who told the story at his funeral of, uh, of him phoning her up and saying, I, I want you to invite me for lunch. <laughs> oh, man. That's Jesus. And he offers grace when he shows up. I'm sure many of you have your own memories of these beloved ones, and those of you who didn't know these ones have memories of your own beloved saints. And in the end, I think that the, the great gift that saints give us, those presents and those past, is the reminder, the hope that our lives are meant to be, that our lives get to be lived in glad response to who and how God is and nothing less. And that's all a saint is. Someone learning to live in the grace of Jesus, the way that they were created to live, to love God, to love ourselves, to love each other, to love creation with everything that we've got. And you know, it's entirely possible that God is calling you to something extravagant. Don't let me talk you out of thunder and lightning if that's 
God's choice. If God is telling you to leave and everything and go, then leave everything and get. But we're probably going to figure that sort of stuff out, not by chasing after it, but by following in Ruth's steps and the steps of countless saints, doing the faithful thing one step at a time, learning in Jesus' way to say unremarkable things by the world's standards, things like, I won't leave you in your distress, even if it costs me. Let it be with me according to your word. Have a cup of water and a bite to eat. Not my will, but yours. That's how Jesus, his will and way, gets worked into the world, here and now and forever. So may it be so.